please be seated. It is good to be with you tonight, and welcome to Refinery Church, but specifically welcome to our uh, weekly worship gathering. This is the time where weekly, as a church body, we gather and we worship. We worship through a variety of ways. We worship from the very beginning of, of the evening. When you walk in, there are people who are serving God, and they are worshiping by serving God through greeting, through the cafe, through what you just experienced together in worship. There are people who serve God, and that is a form of worship. And then we gather in here, and we do what we just did. We worship through song and praise. We sing together as a church body and worship our God all together. We've also now tonight specifically worshiped through the taking of communion, and then now as we continue, we're going to worship through the reading of God's Word. And so if you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open with me to the book of Malachi. That's where we're going to be reading tonight. This is the last week we're reading in Malachi, because this is the last week we're in a series that we've called Malachi Disputes with God. And this series, the name would give you an indication of what we've been talking about. Disputes with God means exactly what you would think. The book of Malachi has been a variety of disputes between God and his chosen people in Israel during a very specific time in their, in their history. And so for this series, we've looked at week by week a different dispute the Israelites had with God or God had with the Israelites. And every single week, we've highlighted one of the six major disputes you see in the book. The first week of this series, which we started in the first week of January, we highlighted the very first dispute we see in the book, which is the Israelites wondering if God even loves them. There's a reason for that we'll get to in a minute, but, but they truly were wondering, does God love us any longer? And God disputed that and said, of course I love you. And God, in the first five verses of the book of Malachi, gives evidence to prove this is actually true. I do, in fact, love you. The next week, week two of this series, we looked at the very next verses where we saw God come back at the Israelites and say, well, I've loved you, I've been consistent, but you haven't necessarily loved me. And for the rest of chapter 1 and, the, and the, all the way into chapter 2, God provides a detailed account of evidence pointing to the fact that, yes, indeed, the Israelites had rebelled against God. They had separated themselves from God and his kingdom. They've uh, rebelled against him by disobeying his commands. The, he, they've done a ton of different things, and God provides the evidence to prove it, that they have, in fact, rebelled against him. He even goes as far as to say that they despise him. The Israelites despised God. And so in week two, we looked at that and how God had evidence to, to prove that true. And then week three, last week, was a, was a different one. We looked at the fact that after all of that evidence pointing to their disobedience, their evil, the Israelites were pretty humbled. And so they begin to look to God and say, well, Lord, how do we return to you? If we're so evil, if we disobeyed you so much, how do we return? And God provides them, in summary, God provides them the answer, obey my commands. Now, last week, we specifically looked at the command um, to pay your tithes and contributions. But that's a much more complicated answer because it's a cultural answer. And we talked about that last week. In summary, God is saying, obey me. Obey my commands. That's the first three weeks of this series. Tonight is week four. It's the final week of the book of Malachi. The final week we're studying the book of Malachi. We're going to continue in chapter 3, 
Specifically, we're going to begin reading in verse 13 in just a moment. But before we read, I want to, I want to give you a scenario. Maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've been a part of this. But imagine with me a scenario where you're in an argument with somebody. Think of the last argument you had with somebody. More often than not, when you argue, this is what happens. Maybe you do this. Maybe the person you're arguing with does this. This is what normally happens. There's the issue, the major issue, the thing that sparks the argument. And this is what you start fighting about. The argument is between you and that person on this one major issue. But then by the end of the argument, there's a new issue, a secondary issue, if you will. An issue that wasn't really a part of the main argument, but somehow, in the heat of the moment, you're now arguing about something completely new. Have you seen this before? Maybe you've done this? I certainly have. It's not a great thing to do, but it's, it's a reality. This is what happens in arguments. Little festering things under the surface that you haven't addressed, and out of nowhere, they bubble up, and then you begin arguing about things that have nothing to do with the original issue. I'm sure you've seen this in before, whether in your own life or someone else's. That's kind of what we're going to see tonight in the book of Malachi. As I've already said, there was one major issue that the Israelites were facing with God. This major issue we looked at week one of this series because basically, if I can summarize the best I can, the Israelites had unrealistic expectations on, on God. They had rebuilt God's temple as God had commanded them, commanded them to do. And by the end, they were happy and they were thinking, man, if God's going to bless us and God's going to prosper us, God, all these things he's promising us, he's going to do. But little did they know, God was promising those things for future generations. But the current Israelites looked at, looked at that and said, well, surely he's talking about us. And so when those blessings and prospering didn't occur, they got upset. Their impatience bled through. And so there's some unrealistic expectations the Israelites had with God, and that's what sparks the book of Malachi. The entire book is, starts with this argument of, Lord, we expected this. Do you even love us? Because you're not doing what we thought you would do. That is the overarching argument. But tonight, there's a secondary argument. One that does have to do with the first one, but we'll see has a little bit of different spin to it. Here is that argument playing out in verse 13. I'm going to read verses 13 and 15, and then we'll discuss those verses together. Here's how it starts. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Again, overarching argument. One big issue. Big issue is unrealistic expectations. But here we see a secondary issue. What do, we, what do we see? It's overflowing in this emotion that the Israelites are sharing with God. We see it here in verse 15, the evidence. They say, or it says in verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Essentially, what the Israelites have an issue with is they believe they deserve profit. They've served God, they've obeyed God, and yet now they don't see the blessing they expected. And again, this does have to do with the original issue. They rebuilt God's temple, 
and yet now they don't see the blessing they expected, but they're expecting profit. That's why they say, what is the profit of, our, of, our, of us keeping his charge? They expect in return a reward for their obedience. That's the original argument. But there's a secondary issue here. We see this in verse 15. A secondary part of this issue that is overflowing in their emotions. Here's what verse 15 says again. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So not only are the Israelites upset with the fact that they have not received their reward, they're actually making the claim that others around them are being rewarded and they're evildoers. They're actually believing that those they see in other nations and those other Israelites who have done evil things, who have disobeyed God, they think that those people are blessed, that those people are being prosperous, those people are getting the reward they deserve. They're looking at those around them and comparing themselves and thinking, Lord, why do they get the blessings? Why do they get the prosperity? Why do they get the things that we deserve? We're the ones obeying you. We're the ones doing your, your work. We're the ones doing what you've called us to do. And yet we look around at other nations and they're rebuilding and they're growing and they're succeeding and yet we're here doing none of that. So why do we not receive this reward? You know, this dispute we're looking at tonight, I believe, is the most relatable one we've seen so far in the book of Malachi. Every dispute we've seen so far, I believe, is a, is a dispute we've seen before in our own lives, but this one, I think, is the most relatable. And I believe you probably asked this question yourself. Maybe not in this context, but what if you, I bet you've heard this before. Maybe you've said it, or maybe someone you know has said it. Why does good things happen to bad people? Or why does bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that before? Maybe you've thought it yourself. It's a very common argument against God. Lord, if you're so great, why do good things happen to all these bad people? All these evil people, yet they seem to be prospering. The Israelites had the same issue. This is not a new issue. This is not a, a modern-day problem. The Israelites, God's chosen people, have the same problem. Lord, when we look around, we see all this evil, and all of them seem, seem to be doing great. And yet us, the faithful, us, the obedient, us, the good people, we don't seem to be prospering very much. What's up with that? Where is our reward? Why do good things happen to bad people? That's the question they're asking. And it's the major question we're going to answer tonight through the book of Malachi. The dispute we're focusing on is, why should I serve God? If good things are going to happen to bad people, why should I serve God? It's the question the Israelites ask, and it's the question we're going to ask tonight. And through the next following verses, we're going to see God's answer to the Israelites specifically. And hopefully, by the end of this evening, we're going to be able to see exactly how God answers their question. And with knowing his response to them, we can then apply it to our own lives and begin to see how God would respond to us as modern believers. We need to know, what does God say to the Israelites? They're asking, why should we serve you any longer, Lord? What is our profit for keeping your charge? Well, here's God's response, starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one, with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, if you've been with us for the, the last three weeks of this series, maybe 
you note, take notice here, that this seems a little bit different than what we've seen so far. You should, because this answer seems a little bit different. Every other dispute we've seen up to this point has been a consistent theme. What we've seen up to this point is the Israelites have a dispute, they ask a question, and God gives a direct answer. Kind of direct. He does speak through his prophet, but he gives an answer, as in words to answer the question, here's what I believe. This is what the Lord has to say about this issue. You have a problem, here's my answer. But here in verse 16, we see something a little bit different. Verse 16 doesn't give us a direct answer, but instead it gives us a clue. It allows us to see what God sees. It allows the Israelites to see what God sees. God gives them essentially what is a bird's eye view of what he's looking at. And what is he looking at? He's seeing this in verse 16 again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. He's letting them see what he sees. And what does he see? He sees those who feared the Lord spoke with one, with one another. There's two things to note here. Those, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. There's two things to note about this section specifically. One, and one we cannot neglect, those who feared the Lord. Again, if you've been here through the entire book of Malachi, you've seen not a lot of evidence of those who fear the Lord. In fact, at this point, I don't think, I might be wrong, but I've read this book several times this week, I don't think I've seen a single instance of someone fearing God in the book of Malachi. At least we haven't seen evidence of that. And so if you're a reader of this book, if you're a reader of, of Malachi, you haven't seen a single instance of hope. All you've seen is God answering questions to those who've rebelled against him, who've run away from him, who've chased things that are not godly. And yet here in chapter 3, three chapters into the book, over two-thirds done with this book is the first time, to my knowledge, we see God acknowledge faithfulness. Verse 16 again, then those who feared the Lord. There are people in Israel who feared the Lord. They continue to fear the Lord. And this is very important to note, note because it means there's hope. It means that there are good things coming. If everything we've seen is despair of people who have disobeyed God, everywhere you turn, all you see is disobedience. There is no hope. At least it doesn't feel like there's any hope. But now, in chapter 3, we finally see what we've been waiting for. Hopeful message of those who are still in Israel. Those who are still faithful to God. Those who look around at all their brothers and sisters who have been completely disobedient, completely rebellious. And yet they stay firm in the faith. We cannot neglect that truth. There is hope. There is hope today. When you look around and you see evil all around you, there is hope. There's hope in this room faithful men and women who still hold firm to what we know to be true that our Lord and Savior has saved us from a life of evil and a life of rebellion there is hope because those who feared the Lord were in Israel but it doesn't end there there's another thing we should note here at the very end what did these faithful men and women do they spoke with one another they spoke what do you think we're doing right now as a church body? We're gathering. We call this our weekly worship gathering because that's what it is. It's a gathering of believers 
to worship God and to be together as a church body. What we're seeing here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, is a group of faithful men and women who fear God gathering together and speaking with, speaking with one another. They're doing what we're doing. They are gathering. They are spending time together. They are putting all of their focus on one another and to God. And this is very important to note because this is exactly what God calls us to do as believers. These men and women, you've got to understand what they're seeing. These men and women are looking around them and all they see is evil. All they see is despair. All they see is all those friends of theirs who rebuilt the temple just a couple of decades ago have now fled and chased after women from other, other nations. They've left their wives and families and gone lustfully after over women who are not of their nation. The same men and women who helped them rebuild their temple not a few decades ago have now rebelled against God and offered him lame sacrifices and offered him lame things on his altar. These faithful men and women, when they look around, all four corners of their world is nothing but despair and evil and rebellion. And what do they do in the face of that rebellion? They gather together and they focus their attention on one another, on the faithful, and on God. They spend time encouraging one another, holding each other accountable, making sure that they are still seeing the hope that is there, that there are men and women who still believe in God and still put their hope and faith in God. That's why we as believers, we know this to be true. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us this same encouragement, verses 24 through 25, where it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as it is habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does this tell us? It tells us exactly what we're seeing in Malachi, and exactly what, what we know to be true as believers. Gathering together could not be more essential. We as believers must stand firm together, because when you leave this room, I don't have to tell you this, there is evil. There is evil out in this, in this world. And it's only going to get worse. Evil is going to corrupt this world. We know this to be true. But here in the church, here in God's house, here in the body of believers who stand firm on God's message, stand firm on God's commands, is where we stand firm and hold firm on what we know to be true. It's where we get the encouragement we need. It's where we get the hope we need. It's a reminder that when we go out into our neighborhoods, into our homes, and to our workplaces and schools, and we see that evil, we see that rebellion, it's not everything. That there are still faithful people who love the Lord and want to lift you up, hold you accountable to what they know to be true as well. You know, when I was, when I was in sixth grade is when, when I first started attending church. And I got the privilege to go to what was essentially this large youth conference out in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. I got to go on this trip, and it was me, Lydia was there, and it was us two and about 12 other students, so 14 of us in total, all got to go from our church in Raleigh, North Carolina, to Knoxville, Tennessee for this youth conference. And at this conference is where I got saved. It's where I experienced Christ for the first time. I heard the gospel for the first time. I got to experience the transformative power of Jesus for the very first time. And myself, along with the other, other 13 students who were on that trip, we left that trip changed. All 14 of us had an emotional experience at this trip. 
We all heard the gospel. We all heard the stories. We all heard these amazing speakers who share with us the gospel, share with us Jesus Christ. And I remember it was the third night of our conference that we all sat together in this little, little church on the, on the campus we were staying at. And the, the guys sat together and the girls sat together and we just talked. And that night, I remember every single one of us on fire for God. Not a single one of us did not see the message. Not a single one of us did not see what had happened that night. But can I tell you something? Lydia and I have reflected on this before. Out of the 14 students that went on that trip who had these radical changes in their lives that night, four of us still go to church. Friends of mine, people I still know who are, I'm fond with, the people I've known for years, that same radical trans, trans, transformative power that I experienced for whatever reason didn't stick with them. Only four of us have found our way back into the church or, or even stayed in the church. And it makes you question, it made me question when I was younger, when, when those people started to fall off, it made me question, why me? Why us? Why are, uh, why are we still on fire for God and yet those who I thought had the same feeling I had no longer seem to care? It was later a, a much wiser man than me came and told me the answer. And it's, it's the same man who gave me the advice that kept me in church. When I went to him and asked that question, why do my friends not seem to have the passion I have anymore? He gave me this answer. He said, Caleb, it's because they did not change their lives after they came back and thought they had changed. What I mean by that is you go on this trip, you have this transformative moment, everything in you changed. At least you think it did. You changed. And then you go home and you go back to school and your school didn't change. You did. You go back to your home. Your home didn't change. You did. You go back to your neighborhood. Your neighborhood didn't change. You did. Your friend group, they didn't change. You did. You change, but everything around you stayed the exact same. What happens when that, when that occurs? Eventually, over time, you become the same thing you were before you left because nothing else in your life changed. Here's what happened to me. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the wisdom of men in my life who transformed me at that age. When I got back from that trip, when I saw Christ for the first time, when I had that transformative moment in my life, the first weekend I was back in church, a man came to me, a pastor on our, on our staff, and he said, Caleb, I want you to go serve in the kids' department. I'm in sixth grade, going to seventh grade. I have no reason to be in the kids' department. But at that point in my life, I was so on fire for God, I said, of course I'll go serve in the kids' department. Sign me up. Where do I go? And for three years, every Sunday, I was in the kids' department. I was serving alongside wiser men than me. I was serving alongside those who were pouring into me. I had commitment to the gathering of believers. And every week, the weeks I didn't want to be there, I still went because I had a responsibility. It was such a wise decision by that man to say, Caleb, I want you to go and build commitment in this gathering because when my friends, who nothing in their lives changed, eventually fell off because there was nothing holding them there, it was that commitment to the, the, the group, to the, the party, to the group of believers that kept me going. 
And through that commitment, I began to love the Bible because I would read it in, in preparation for my Sunday school lessons. I would begin to prepare, and I learned to love the Scriptures and love God. And I truly began to build a relationship that is for, firmly planted within me, and it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with every single weekend. I went to a group of believers, and they encouraged me. They held me accountable, and they made me pursue God and pursue holiness. And so what I'm telling you right now is what I'm telling, well, what we've seen so far in the book of Malachi. When you want to continue moving closer to Christ, continue chasing after God, do what they did. Come together and speak with one another, encourage one another, lift one another up. Make this a priority, not just because we want to see each other, but because we want to stand firm on God's commands. We want to live a life that is firmly planted on Christ. And this is his church. And so make sure to do what Malachi does, do what the book of Hebrews tells us, to be firmly planted with those who believe and to let them be the ones to encourage you and lift you up. These people in Malachi did that. They spoke with one another when they saw evil around them. And here in verse 16, we see how God responds to them or how God, how God looks at this situation. Read verse 16 with me again. It says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. He heard them speak with one another. And what does he do? It says, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Remember how this whole situation started. These men and women looked to God and said, Lord, why should we serve you any longer? Why should we come to you and serve you any longer? We're not receiving any rewards. We're not getting blessed like we thought we would. Why on earth should we continue to esteem your name? Well, here's the answer. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God took notice. And as it says, it was a book of remembrance that was written before him. Now, what is a book of remembrance? Is this literally God writing a book in heaven? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But here's what I do know. A book of remembrance is something that these Israelites would have known. It's something they would have been very familiar with. In their culture, kings and, and royals and people in high power, they would have what was called a book of remembrance or a, a book of remembering. It was a way for them to keep track of good deeds being done in their kingdom. We actually see a great example of this in the book of Esther, chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, on, the night, on that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. What we're seeing here is a king in high power who has all these people doing great things for him, good deeds for him. He needs to have them, uh, have them written down so he remembers. And later in that chapter, just a few, a few verses later, we see that king see a good deed that has not yet been rewarded. And what does he do? He rewards it. Because he's remembering what's been done for him. So is God writing a real book of remembrance? Maybe, maybe not. But the important thing to note here is what that signifies for these Israelites, which is God remembers. Just like the kings of their day, God remembers. Now, of course, God doesn't need a book to remember, but it points to that truth. God remembers. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 56, verse 8, comes back to this book as a, as a way of comfort. He says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
the psalmist is, com- is comforted by this truth that there is a book of remembrance, remembering his pain, but also remembering his good deeds and faithfulness. God does not change. And God remembers. That's what we're learning tonight. And he continues in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Our God is a God who remembers. And maybe for some of you that is a blessing. You might be like the Israelites who, were, who felt that and were excited because they'd done all these good deeds for God. And they're excited because God's going to remember my faithfulness. Great. I am so happy that that is a good thing for you. Some of you, however, might hear that and that brings a sinking feeling to your stomach because God remem- remembers. He does not forget. I think a great example of this truth is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 6 starting in verse 19 where it says do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will also be bringing this back to the central question why should we serve God I think it's perfectly answered here in Matthew because he remembers because he remembers and because he has a plan his plan to give you the reward you deserve in a place that it will not rust it will not rot it will not go away God could give you the same reward the evil people have but guess what those evil people when they leave this world all that reward all that blessing all that prosperity guess what's going to happen to it it's going to be destroyed they don't get to take that with them they don't get to do anything with that. Yeah, great, this world, they had everything they ever wanted, but you know what's going to happen? When they reach God and when he has that book of remembrance and when he looks at what, they, what they've done, he's going to say, you've done nothing for me. You've not been faithful to me. Great, you had fun here on earth, but you know what? You have nothing here. I have nothing for you. I have no reward to give you because there's nothing in this book to point to the faithfulness you were supposed to give me. Our God is a God who remembers and thank God he's a God who remembers. Because us, the faithful, those who stand firm on God's commands, when we don't see the prosperity that our friends and our neighbors and the politicians of this world and the CEOs of this world and all the people we're looking at and saying, why is God blessing them? Maybe he's not. Ever thought about that? Maybe he's not blessing them. But maybe they're trapped in something that is completely worthless. But we as believers know that there's something far greater out there for us and it's not money it's not possessions it's not resources it's an eternal heaven eternal reward that can only come through faithfulness and believing in Jesus Christ I'll end with this as we wrap up I'll end with this you know why should we what should we leave here tonight understanding there's three things I want you to leave here understanding about Malachi 3 first we should understand that we should know that the Israelites here in Malachi 3 have shown nothing but self-centeredness. That's true. Look at how they've acted. They're looking to God and saying, where is our reward? Where do, what, where, what do we get here? These people, like us, are selfish. And when they look to God, all they expect is reward. That's the character 
of these men and women we see here in Malachi. It's John 14, 15 that says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if I give you a reward, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if we love God, we keep his commandments regardless of the reward that's promised. But we also learn something else. What we've been harping on for a while here, the second thing we learn is that we learn that our God remembers. God, despite what the Israelites thought, had paid attention and took note of all the good deeds and faithfulness that he had done. As they complained about all the things that they thought he was supposed to do, little did they know that he was writing down in his book everything they had been doing, all the faithfulness, all the obedience, the times they gathered, the times they encouraged, God was remembering that, and God will remember that. Third thing we have to remember, and the most important, is this. Our reward is eternal. Not temporary, eternal. And so when you ask that question, when others ask that question, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is this. Our God is a God who remembers, and our God is a God with rewards that are eternal, that will prosper for eternity, that will not rot, that will not be destroyed, but our God is a God who's offering rewards that cannot be, cannot be matched here on earth. You cannot get what God is offering you here on earth. Not a person, not a thing, not, a, not an experience can offer you the same joy and peace God can, and the same reward God can offer you in heaven. Stand with me, if you will. As we come to a close here, I want to offer you three pieces of reflection. Three ways you can reflect on Malachi 3. One is this. As believers, here's one thing we can reflect on. It's not about our good deeds. It's not about us. It's about God. Note that. It's not about us. It's about God. God remembers God is faithful, as we've already seen so far. God has already paid the debt for us. It is about God, not us. We love God. We're supposed to love God. And because we love God, we obey his commands. It's about God, and because we love God, we obey his commands. And so, for us, as believers, we should reflect on the love of God. We should reflect on the fact that our God loves us. And because our God loves us, we should then, in turn, obey him. Here's another thing we should reflect on. And as we move into worship, this is what we should focus on. I've said it already, but I'll say it again. Our God remembers. And because our God remembers, we can reflect on all the good things that we've done for him and know that those things will be rewarded in heaven. But here's the caveat. Because our God remembers, we know that there are things he'll remember about us that are not the best. He's going to remember things about us that we might not want him to, that we might want to forget about ourselves by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, we do not have to fear about that. I want us to really understand this. Brothers and sisters, we have mercy through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that truth that God remembers, it should not be one that makes you fearful. It should be one that you celebrate. It should be one that you want to jump up and joy with because our God is one that is going to keep his faithfulness and keep his commands, keep the things that he's promised us. We started this service with communion to remember the fact that our God is one that of, of mercy. And so as we close tonight and we look at our own lives and look at the things that we've done, we have two ways to respond. One, we can respond with joy. 
we can respond with lifting his name in praise. And we're going to end in worship. I encourage you to do that. One way you can respond is just by, simply by worshiping. Spend your time and worship God because he deserves it. Another way you can respond is by repenting. There's sin in your life and sin in your heart, things that you have not let get given to the Lord yet. He remembers those things. But that does not mean that has to be the final verdict. Repentance is what God calls us to do. It's what Peter calls them in Acts to do, to repent and be baptized, to come and offer your life over to God. And so my encouragement to you is to do that. As we focus on all the things that God has promised us, the altars are open. And if there is something in your life, whether it's small or whether it's big, we're supposed to submit all of it to him. Give him everything. So my encouragement, my challenge, my encouragement to respond is simply that. If there is something in your life that needs to be given over to God, do not be afraid to come and publicly give that to him on the altars. Our God is a God of so much mercy. And it is Jesus who, who gave us the key to that mercy. He came and lived that life for us that was so perfect. A perfect life that you and I could have never accomplished. And because of that perfect life, we have eternal life. And so brothers and sisters, take this time with me to worship God. Worship God through song and praise, but worship God through submitting your lives to him. And if you need the altars, if you need time to spend with him and repent of your sins, this is the time to do it. Because our God is a God of freedom. And he wants you to have that freedom.